Hello and welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is season two and I'm your host, Beverly Roche. On this season, I'll have some exciting guests talking about their experiences in cybersecurity, along with a four-part series on scams and fraud. Looking forward to you joining me for this season. My incredibly supportive colleagues, Jonathan and Jason at CyberAware, are supporting my production for the podcast for the next few series, which is really kind of them. Hey, go check out their next-gen security awareness training at cyberaware.com. Today on the Cybersecurity Cafe, I'm going to be joined by Paul Burrow. He has the most incredible energy, this guy. I just love his enthusiasm and ability to grasp things early. He really is an early adopter. Got on board with human-centered design quite a few years ago and is really a cybersecurity behavioral expert. I think you'll be able to get some really interesting insights from Paul. Hey, Paul, so nice of you to join me on the Cybersecurity Cafe. I've got so many fantastic questions to ask you because I always love chatting with you. Thank you. Tell me about how you landed in cyber. Geez, it's... um it's, it all happened quite some time ago, going about six and a half years ago now. I worked on a big ERP transformation for Carlton United Breweries, and that project was coming to an end. I had an offer on the table, but a friend of mine that I previously worked in management consulting had said to me, hey, there's a role going um, in the information security office at, um, at one of the big banks. Would you uh, like to get involved and I thought, yeah, why not? I'm, I'm a reasonably good change manager. I'm a good communications. Let's let's see what it's all about. And from there, um, I met with some really great people and we hit it off straight away. Admittedly, I my background or where I studied was actually around politics and international relations. So I, I sort of had visions of, you know, becoming the next Kofi Annan, working all around the world in hardship postings, which I did. <laughs> I, I worked for the UN. I worked for the Qatar Foundation. I worked for World Vision International. I'd spent time overseas working on these big projects. And after doing a stint there, I um, I wanted to come back in and get more of a professional slant. I felt as though um, international aid and development is an amazing area, particularly when you're working on the ground. But I wanted to get a taste for the management consulting space and see if I could potentially bring that back into international aid and development and politics. And then, you know, many, many years later, here I am having a wonderful conversation with you. Look, I just find that fascinating. I didn't know, you know, I've known you for a while, but we always get busy talking about human-centred security. Mm. I didn't know about your background. And I think for other people listening to the podcast, wondering, does cyber really hold it for you? You know, given that sort of background, you know, you've, you've come through quite an interesting path. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about does it hold your interest? It does because there's a lot of unfinished work um, around information security and cybersecurity. I think it's easy for people to essentially geek out on cyber and think that it's all hackers and coders. 
but my experience is vastly different. Um, if if the area has, I wouldn't I wouldn't say problems, but lots of challenges, and it doesn't matter which organisation you work for, but just more of taking the industry view, we know that a lot of people really struggle to both understand and implement cybersecurity practices um, from all levels of complexity. And I think just with my focus around human-centered design um, and and sort of trying to identify what's known as wicked problems, which really comes from the literature of um, Tim Brown. So he, he's from IDEO, um, sort of one of the gurus who really looked at human-centered design and really coined the this phrase that you might hear people talk about, you know, how might we fill in the gap? So how might we get all Australians to implement two-factor authentication or how might we get um, all CEOs to make cybersecurity their number one priority? We, we would call those sort of wicked problems and, you know, cybersecurity has some really wicked problems and, you know, I think more and more that that's come into the public domain post-2016 and what happened with Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee and then looking at Russia um, and then, you know, and election meddling and then the role of social media and now and big data. So there's these huge, huge wicked problems around cybersecurity which make, make the area super, super exciting. Um, I can look at it from so many perspectives you know, looking at blockchain, but one of my real passion areas is the human side of cyber. And, you know, if you were to ask me the question around how the human side of cybersecurity is viewed, say maybe five years ago, I would say those teams were largely made up of, and this is my experience across um, industries and stakeholders that I know, but it's made up of sort of corporate communications, people who maybe change managers on technology projects that then fell into specialising in cybersecurity. But more and more people that are moving into this area of expertise do have a behavioural expertise itself and how it applies to technology. You know, you were one of the early ones to kind of really embrace what Professor Lizzie Coles-Kemp was yeah. talking about, and that's clearly because you've been thinking about, Lizzie describes them as naughty problems, mm-hmm. but the way that you frame the question yeah. that's the um, exciting piece is what are the questions that you should be asking to fill those gaps in? You know, it's a cliche. If you ask the right question, the answer is easy and and I know this sounds really corporate and jargony, but it is around finding a shared language with people and under, understanding the key words that resonate with people. Um, language is a big part of it all for me. And um, when I can find language that business stakeholders understand just as much as technologists, that's that's the secret sauce right there. Then you can get everyone talking on the same page. But until you find a shared language, Cybersecurity professionals are going to be so challenged to influence their stakeholders, and we can't continue to say that the sky is falling because of um, the different compromises that are that are taking place or different big brands that have gone down. We have to be talking in a shared language with one another, and you know, helping to determine or label that problem together. So, with a business stakeholder and a technologist or a cybersecurity professional. That goes a very, very long way in making security matter. 
we've got to be able to translate everything that technical people think is important because, you know, we're technical Mm. as well, but we understand how to build that narrative in order to get people engaged. 100%. And I understand why cybersecurity professionals may default back to technology solutions. Um, There's I believe there's really good reasons for that. Um, One, because sometimes um, humans are valuable. So we want to sort of save ourselves from ourselves, you know, by removing choices away from them. But also technology is largely binary. And I'm sure some of your listeners will probably um, disagree with me on that. But No, it'd be um, controversial. Go for it. I'm not saying it's easy, but... (laughs) It's easy to code something as binaries, black and white, it will do this or it won't do that. But to try and um, code a human is very, very difficult. One of the things that people in my area are really interested in, what I speak to my peers across different industries, is around cognitive load. So let's take something as benign as um, or simple as phishing, a phishing email. Yes, we all know phishing emails are bad. Um, yes, sometimes they can be really obvious to spot. But let's just imagine that it's um, your kids have been sick on the weekend or you're going through a divorce or um, all of a sudden um, you're ex- you've got a big workload on at work and you're just not thinking straight and an email comes through at, you know, um, you know, maybe it's first thing on Monday morning or it's the end of end of the day on um, Tuesday once the work work week is done to really ramp up and you just make you make a slip up because your cognitive load is so high and Mm. that's really hard to program a human around. Like how do you remind people, hey, remember you're always really drowsy or you're not thinking um, in the best state of mind around this time, so be extra vigilant. Um, That sort of is an oxymoron in itself. It's very difficult to do. So what I'm trying to look at is what are the behavioural cues that will give us indication that people's cognitive load might be quite high and what can we do to mitigate that human risk? So tell us more about that because that's something that we all need to work through in terms of helping people just pause. But then, you know, as you said, it's a cognitive load issue and, um, you know, we're the last people on their minds, right? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do um, and the industry um, could do a lot more in this is really start to look at the customer journey map. Um, anyone who's in product design um, or in sort of customer service will understand customer journey mapping mm. and it's used a lot in UX design. Mm. But customer journey mapping can be mapped in both the offline and online world. Um, in our lives, um, we will as professionals, we need to understand how are um, people interacting with our technology, how are they interacting with information, how are they protecting it and saving it, and first start to see, okay, where are the opportunities, where are the, um, the really dangerous parts of someone's day? Now, generally speaking, we would know, you know, as I said, a cognitive load is quite high um, towards the middle of the week as the um, you're starting to ramp up. Um, humans, we start to fatigue around between 2 and 3 mm. uh, p.m. So you know that um, that's where we could be potentially be more susceptible around a phishing email at that time. Um, when it comes to the um, someone off-boarding from an organisation, there's probably a heightened time of where someone 
could be trying to um, send sensitive information to their personal account so they can sort of exfiltrate all this information before they leave an organisation. We need to look at those typical journeys that we can anticipate where someone might do the wrong thing and look at what controls can we put in place. And controls don't have to just be technology, um, as, as we mentioned earlier. Mm. We, we can look at a lot of the human things that we might do. So where my peers and I are looking is trying to get the right message to the right person in the right channel. Now, for you and I, the right message might be, you know, via email um, just before I walk out the door. But say to a, a millennial, it could be um, via a text message or um, a, a short GIF or video um, between 6 and 7 p.m. when they're traveling home on public transport because, you know, they're looking at their phones, watching YouTube or listening to a podcast. Um, we need to understand what what are all our sort of our users or our segments, um, customer journeys, and apply the right message at the right time via the right channel? But I think it's much harder because demographically you have to look across the organisation and identify those groups. Yeah. You know, you have to work out what's that point of inflection where you can grab them. And we know that, you know, it can't just be one size fits all. You know, we've got to have, you know, for executives, it could be this channel, but for millennials, it's a different channel. And, you know, that's a lot of legwork. That's a lot for a team to do across a big organisation. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at big organisations, it's easy to go, well, you know, let's just get out some basic training, you know, 101 training module, let's get out some communications and send it to all staff or all our customers. But you and I know just as everyday punters, everyday consumers, if something is not targeted to me, I'm not going to engage in it. Not at all. Um, And so you're right. It, it, It is a lot of hard work and we have to segment our users um, really specifically, we can't be generic anymore. You can't just put up a poster and hope that someone sees it and says, I will classify all my information. The converse to that is um, YouTube. I don't know how many of your listeners have a YouTube premium um, account. I know I do. It's very, very good. YouTube is so good at optimizing messages to me and the videos to me that if I watch one video on a random topic, all of a sudden it floods my my feed to the point where it's it's almost optimized too much. It doesn't allow me a little bit of flex. I might I might all of a sudden watch um, a Wiggles video for one of my kids and all of a sudden it thinks that I want to watch Wiggles every everything. children's video. Yeah, Wiggles everything. SpongeBob SquarePants, you know. You know. <laughs> and, and unboxing videos of toys. Yeah. Whether or not we we think we can do it, um, end users demand and expect that now as well. Everyone wants unique, customised feeds. So can I just unpack this a little bit more because I think there's a couple of streams here and one is how do you resource a team? Let's make some baseline assumptions. You've got capable colleagues that have got mindsets like yours and frankly, I know you do because I know them as well as you do. So I think I think that's a big tick because you're not competing with 
old methodologies or no, we're going to do it this way because that that big, heavy compliance product worked really well for us before. We've got to try these new things. And that means mm. you really just got to experiment with that group, don't you, until you kind of get it right. Well, definitely. I mean, if you um, look at one of our counterparts across the industry, Michelle Price, and how she's looking at her recruitment process, and, and to be honest, some of the you know top end of town where they're starting to recruit people, Yes, trying to formulate um, a team and a team or organisation and structure, that's one thing. I mean, that's very unique to every organisation. But in terms of what kind of people do you want in your team, but more and more we're looking for diversity of thought and people with skills from outside of sort of the typical risk um, and accountancy backgrounds. We need people that really understand business models, um, value proposition design, customer journey mapping, customer personas, mm. to apply that to the technology controls or the processes that we put in place to really make our campaigns, make any sort of updates we make on a network or in some training programs sticky. Um, and that means looking outside traditional fields. That means going and looking at graduate programs and speaking to um, um, graduates of journalism or graphic design. It's a collective skill set. You can't just have one of those disciplines. It's the diversity bringing that together for the problem solving that gives it the heavy lifting, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, you know what? You touch on a good point because it's it's the diversity of that thought, but I, I believe it's really important to have that diversity of approach and style and thought spread across the security team. It's not just in one team that might specialise in training and education or behavioural analytics. It's it's everyone who's working um, around, you know, in the SOC, for example, or working in, um, you know, threat intel. Um, it, it needs to be spread across the groups. Um, so there is that new thought process being brought into it. And, you know, diversity in any sort of workplace only adds more value. I think it's just understanding Absolutely. what does that diversity um, mean and um, really look at things from the end user's point of view more. Hey, can I talk about what's working? What are you doing that you, you know, if you're able to share? What's something new that you, you're doing that you think, I think we've got this right for this audience? I think what we're doing really well is doing less, but being more focused. So three years ago, I think all my counterparts across organisations, like, you know, we've got to, got to make sure that we um, make sure staff know how to classify information, make sure they don't send it, um, send it externally, make sure that our third party risk is managed to all this kind of, you know, there was, there was a list of about 20 different things that we wanted to say and prioritise and what I've observed is everyone's getting much better at being sharper and more consistent with their messaging to their stakeholders. I mean, anyone who has to work with executives and boards, particularly under new regulatory requirements, you know, they there's only so much that they can absorb. I mean, we, we, we know this as individuals. You know, you can maybe tell me 
three things that I'll remember. I mean, I struggle to remember all my kids' birthdays, you know, <laughs> let alone all, all the um, security messages and best practice that we we want people to do. So I believe what's been really effective is just watching everyone really sort of coalesce around a couple of key messages because the last thing you're going to do is get time to sit down with the CEO and explain to them the essential eight. Or even convert the essential eight into something meaningful where every quarter you're hitting them with a number of different messages. So am I right in saying that this security behaviour index, are you aligning that to how PAC's going? For those who hadn't heard about it, so security behavioural index was really um, developed to answer one simple question, and that is, how secure are our people? And it doesn't matter if you're a, a very big organisation with tens of thousands of people or a very small organisation. And um, no one has really created any sort of maturity model or metric or KPI or anything around this aside from phishing emails, right? Clicks and open rates and report rates. We wanted to look at, firstly, what data was available to us and how could we go hand on heart, attribute those data points to a human behaviour. Um, I, I can't sort of go into each and every data point, but they'll obviously be, be unique for organisation. But just one would be fantastic. I guess um, a really simple one, well, actually, talking about it, is um, fishing report rates. We want to measure the rate in which people report because reporting is super, super important to our SOC because our human perimeter is sort of our first and last line of defence, right? If people aren't reporting of malicious emails coming into an organisation and our technology is not picking it up... Big gaps. Then we've got yeah. a problem. Yeah. We, we're tracking the positive behaviour that we want there. Another thing that organisations might want to look at is looking at password reset requests. Um, and these aren't necessarily data points that we capture, but um, that would be a classic round one that you could look at around how, um, you know, if someone has recently got access to someone's user profile name and is trying to then work out their passwords, right? That's something that you could factor in. And if you start to see a large amount of those go up, then you might have a problem. Other ones around unauthorised access into a building, right? People swiping in or being blocked at the door. So th there's lots of different um, data points that that you can capture. That feedback loop of behaviour equals what are we seeing in the SOC and what are the gaps and where are the areas that we need to close those air gaps is so vital. We all know that we can use NIST to measure things, but if we've got something that's really about those behaviours, because that takes it away from just some straight maths and says, well, we've got that number and that number changes, what does that mean? You know, is it effective or what's changed? We're still working out in the wild with those numbers if we don't understand down at a granular level is the behaviour. Are we impacting the behaviour? 
what's great about it is that we use it, we use the security behavioral index to give us direction around areas that we might need to focus as opposed to just relying on ad hoc requests. So Beverly, can you come and talk to my team on, um, you know, um, network segmentation, or can you come and talk to our developers around secure coding best practices? We can now look at our data points and go, we've got black and white data that says right here that we have a problem. And so we can then, you know, um, use our resources, our people, our effort, um, and, and target and make them more powerful. And then hopefully the next month we see the SBI adjust accordingly. And what I can say is we do use that and people track it now. What's been so good is it's given us a new reason to talk to people and show them data, show them it's evidence, right? I wanted to ask you a couple of closing questions if I can. So given the pathway that you came through and given the challenges that we're going to face as an industry moving forward, what's this new breed look like? It's people from outside of technology. What attributes have they got? Um, Most definitely, um, I want to see more um, behavioural experts come in. I want to see more... um, you know, people with a fine arts background um, coming into the industry and how might they reimagine it. Um, It's people with um, cognitive learning disabilities um, who are coming in and helping to design the ways that systems and networks operate um, or developing training materials for people um, that have learning difficulties. Those are the people that we want. Um, You know, my my mother-in-law is a teacher and... Um, she says to me around um, when teachers are designing courses now, they need to um, factor in kids with special needs. And, and the great thing is, is when you do that, when you factor in training or education or a new approach for the person that's going to struggle the most, what evidently happens is everyone benefits because you take everyone on the journey together. Isn't that fantastic mm. advice? That's just wonderful, enriching advice. Now, Paul, in the interests of you and I, mm. eventually wrapping up, yep. how do people get in contact with you? Oh, look, oh, people can um, hit me up on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way um, to contact me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, So it's Paul Burrow, yep. B-U-R-R-O-W. That's right, Paul Burrow. Um, I've got a, a lovely black and white um, photo on there with a nice colourful background. And, yeah, yeah, you'll be able to find me, no problems. Great. Hey, Paul, thanks so much for the chat. And I'll see you around Melbourne coffee locations. You will. The next next coffee's on me. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter or all the W's, cybersecuritycafe.com.au.